what is the what is the Bonjour et bienvenue à Legalise, une podcast de Radler Miguel qui pousse pour une éducation critique et accessible de droit. I'm Christophe and I'll be your host this week. Last Monday, January 10th, the Tribunal Administratif du Travail heard for a second day Provost Manfredi and Francis Desjardins, McGill's Director of Labor and Employee Relations. What were they talking about? They're opposing McGill Law Prof's effort to unionize and therefore constitute McGill's very first union of professors, although about 2,000 workers are already unionized within the university. On November 24th, the interim president of the Association of McGill Professors of Law, Evan Fox Decent, announced that it was organizing to become a certified faculty association. Here is the association's announcement of their campaign to unionize. For the first time in its 200-year history, a group of McGill professors has petitioned the Tribunal Administratif du Travail to be recognized under the Quebec Labor Code as a bargaining unit with authority to pursue a collective agreement. A supermajority of professors from the Faculty of Law has signed membership cards to allow the Association of McGill Professors of Law, AMPL, to act as their members' exclusive bargaining agent. We call on McGill University to stop wasting government funding, student fees, and alumni donations litigating against one of its prized faculties, says Evan Fox Decent, interim president of AMPL. We organize to protect the law faculty's distinctive teaching and research culture, its bilingualism, and to advance our collective desire to ensure equity and diversity for the benefit of our community. We want to give faculty members a voice in shaping decisions that impact not only faculty, but also students, instructors, staff, and alumni. Inspired by independent faculty associations, such as those representing professors of engineering at the University of Sherbrooke and professors of law at Osgoode Hall Law School, AMPL views collective representation at the faculty level as indispensable to preserve its faculty's local self-governance. The purpose of our faculty association is to uphold the mission and collegiality of our law faculty, says Richard Yanda, interim secretary of AMPL. Law is the top-ranked faculty at McGill internationally because it has governed itself as a vibrant intellectual community. Collective representation will mean greater democracy and transparency in the governance of our faculty. Strengthening the rule of law in our workplace will provide greater autonomy for the faculty to pursue academic excellence. AMPL is committed to defending the authority of McGill Law's Faculty Council to govern its members' teaching, research, and service to the broader intellectual community. Faculty self-governance and collective representation is the norm within Quebec and Canadian universities and other post-secondary institutions. The creation of AMPL rests legally on the right of freedom of association. This right has long been recognized by international law and by Canadian courts in decisions addressing Section 2D of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And so we chatted with Evan Fox Decent about the stage of the unionizing effort, the crux of McGill's opposition, and the money that McGill is spending on that, 
and the changes that a union would bring, both for profs and for students. Sure, my name's Evan Fox Decent. I'm a full professor, Canada Research Chair in Cosmopolitan Law and Justice at the Faculty of Law here at McGill University. You were telling me that you've been a faculty member for about 20 years. Almost 20 years. Well, I came here on a post, I've been at McGill for almost 20 years. I came here on a postdoctoral fellowship in the fall of 2003. So I guess by the, I, this coming fall, we'll make it 19 years. Um, and I was appointed to faculty in 2005. So I guess I've been on faculty now 16 years, 16 going 17 years. Does that make you one of the veteran of the faculty? It puts me, uh, well, let's put it this way. I'm, I'm much closer to uh, the veteran side of things than I am the rookie side of things. But I think all of us who uh, came in around the time I came in, it's just, you know, the, the weeks and the months can pass quite slowly, but the years just seem to have melted away. And I certainly don't feel at all much, much more, much older than I did when I, uh, than I came in, though. In fact, of course, I am. Okay, that's great. So uh, we're here to talk about the unionization efforts of the profs and McGill. So um, I guess as a first question, we could talk about what's the the current employment situation of profs at McGill, and is it common to all profs within all faculty, or is McGill uh, particular in any way? Right. So what is common to all professors, tenure track professors at McGill, um, not uh, charge de cours, course lecturers, they are unionized, um, uh, is that tenure and tenure track professors at McGill are not unionized. That is, they do not belong to a faculty association that is recognized to have legitimate legal authority to represent them in collective bargaining negotiations with McGill. So in that sense, all of uh, McGill's profs um, at present uh, have the same status. They are in what in uh, labor law terms is often referred to as a master-servant relationship of, uh, of employment, which is uh, one that of course is subject to reg- statute and regulations Uh, within McGill, but not subject to a collective agreement. And McGill profs are among the very last professors, not simply in Quebec, but across Canada, not to enjoy the protection and the the security and the simple sense of knowing where you stand that one has when one works under a collective agreement. Why is that? Why is McGill so exceptional? Why is McGill so exceptional? Well, I think part of it has to do with McGill's history. There was a general push to unionize universities in Quebec that was almost universal. There was a polytechnic institute that did not become unionized as well as McGill in the 1970s. Now it uh, it operates privately. McGill, for whatever reason, did not, uh, uh, did not organize, the professors did not organize um, at that time. But I should point out that things really have changed quite drastically from the 1970s, even within McGill. 
It's now the case that the Charles de Cour, the, the course lecturers uh, are unionized, clerical workers are unionized, service uh, workers are generally unionized. Um, in fact, virtually all groups of people who are employees of McGill at McGill, other than, other than management and excluded uh, people who are excluded for that reason, uh, are unionized and work under collective agreements. We are, in a sense, the last holdout of what is already an exceptional situation, not simply in Quebec, but, a, but across Canada. Okay. What prompted the unionization effort and how did that happen? Right. Well, I think there are a number of you know, long-standing issues at the Faculty of Law that led uh, my colleagues at the faculty to uh, come to the conclusion that seeking out a collective bargaining regime was the best thing that we could do for the faculty at this time. Uh, the most significant, I think, of which is that the faculty itself is highly distinctive, has a highly distinctive teaching program, does something, of course, that no other faculty does in McGill, which is accredited students to go out and become, uh, qualified students to go out and become accredited across Canada and in fact, across the world uh, eventually, should students wish to do so, to work as, uh, to work as lawyers. Um, and we do this through the delivery of a very innovative and uh, bilingual program, a program that in any case is far more bilingual than any program that I'm aware of that is otherwise uh, delivered uh, at McGill. So it was with, it was with this context um, in mind that with the return to class, many of us were concerned to, uh, going into the end of the summer that case numbers of, uh, for COVID were, uh, were rising. And um, a number of us petitioned our dean to petition the provost to give us a breather, just give us a, a period of time during which colleagues who are nervous about their own vulnerability, the vulnerabilities of the people they were living with could teach if they wished remotely, perhaps until the end of September. And so a number of us petitioned, a number of us petitioned our dean to ask uh, the provost. A number of us also signed, over 30 of us, I think some 35 or 37 of us, uh, of law professors signed a letter asking McGill to um, impose a proof of vaccination requirement or testing regime to so that for people going back into the classroom, we would have as safe an environment as possible. These, these messages and communication, in-house communications happened toward the end of August. And most regrettably, what it's, this seemed to produce was the memo that was circulated that, be, that came to be circulated widely was directed toward chairs and unit heads from the provost of August 29, uh, threatening unspecified discipline against faculty members should they teach remotely and not in person because they were fearful for the COVID implications for themselves or members uh, or members of their family living under. Uh, even those living under the same roof uh, as them. That caught, caused quite an outcry uh, in the faculty. Um, we passed resolutions within our faculty council uh, 
on, I believe, September 24th, affirming the jurisdiction of our, fac of our faculty council under our university statutes to govern our teaching, including mode of delivery, asking our Dean within another resolution to strike a committee to develop guidelines, which was eventually done. But it was during that process that we really came to, uh, uh, came to the conclusion that even if we were to succeed to the extent that we could possibly hope to succeed uh, through this committee and through, um, through faculty council to bring these guidelines into, into effect, what was really at the heart of the issue was simply a lack of equality between us and the university when it came to talk about and negotiate our fundamental terms of employment, including health and safety, including health and safety terms. And I think it was that sentiment, really more than uh, more than anything else, that was, you know, let's call it the bale of hay that broke the camel's back, that. Um, that inspired many of my colleagues uh, to come to me and others and ask if this was a possibility. And it was sort of one of those things that initially was you know, somewhat abstract, but that became concrete uh, much more quickly than we imagined. And you know, before we knew it, we had a majority and then a very substantial majority of our colleagues having signed union cards to join our faculty association to, to seek certification so that we can in fact negotiate a collective agreement between professors of our faculty and the university, which would be the first time that this would happen, of course, in 200 years. It's never happened before at McGill. Amazing. And um, could you quantify the supermajority? How many press? Well, we're not, I, uh, I, I'm, a little I'm a little reluctant to do that, but let's, let's just say we have enough uh, faculty members who've signed up the percentage of which would usually be enough to change a constitution in most countries. <laughs> and, I, and I'll say that as part of the process, we went out of our way to speak to virtually every faculty member before filing for certification. And in fact, a general meeting uh, was called by, uh, by a colleague where all colleagues had the opportunity to participate let their voices be heard um, on the matter. And uh, the colleague uh, the, uh, who called the meeting, well, I'm not gonna say anything more, anything more than simply that um, there was a full opportunity for people to air their views. Um, we filed for certification three days after that between the, the meeting and the time we filed for certification, three additional colleagues had signed uh, mm -hmm. um, union cards. Okay, great. And also, so, I'm hearing that like COVID-19 sort of like prompted this unionization drive. And um, well, very recently, the School of Social Work decided to, to teach remotely until March. So against, I guess, the like university guidelines. And then the university administration sort of, um, I, I don't know exactly how it happened, but like, uh, I guess, not threatened them, but like made them uh, go back on that. It certainly seems that there was a decision made in social work to teach yeah. remotely until after the break. And then there was pressure from central administration for them uh, not to do that, even though, once again, Senate gives very clear authority to the faculties to govern their, uh, to govern their mode of teaching. 
And so, so, and so, um, it so long as the decision was made um, consistent with Senate regulations and university university statutes, it's unclear, quite frankly, what authority um, central administration had to mm. uh, 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 to intervene in this uh, in this manner at all. Now, I will say this: although you know, although COVID did to some extent provide the impetus for our faculty to seek unionization, it would be, I think, a mischaracterization to say that that is the fundamental justification for why we're doing it. I mean, the mm-hmm. real reason for why we're doing it, and a lot of uh, you know, my colleagues, uh, quite frankly, regret that it's happening at a time of COVID and would have preferred for this to happen in more normal times when we could have had uh, more extensive dis- discussions, perhaps, about the prospect and, uh, and fact of doing it. But what really lies at the bottom of it, more than anything, much more than COVID, is simply the sense of being unequal in an employment relationship when mm-hmm. one side really cannot bargain on anything resembling terms of equality with the other, which is which is standard in employer-employee relations, of course, and is the very reason that people collectivize and seek to seek, seek to bargain collectively, um, because then they do have an opportunity. We will we do we will have an opportunity to engage with McGill on more equal terms, and participate constructively and fruitfully with McGill on more equal terms in terms of uh, with respective developing policies that are of benefit to all. Yeah. Yeah. So what would be like the material impacts of unionization on your working conditions as profs? Um, Well, in terms of our working conditions, we've made it very clear from the beginning that for us, this is not really um, something that we're doing with an eye on compensation uh, per se, or to try to get some advantage with respect to that. Really what this is about for faculty at the Faculty of Law is about strengthening um, our faculty's autonomy, the autonomy that historically it has had and exercised over years to, for example, develop the world's world's first trans-systemic legal education project, teaching the civil law and, and the common law together in more recent, and of course, in more recent years, responding to call to action uh, number 28 of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, by doing, among other things, making the teaching of Indigenous legal traditions a mandatory part of our first year curriculum. Again, completely unique uh, in, in unique in the world, unique in Canada to be, uh, to be doing this um, and to be doing it, of course, from our faculty. So what we really are trying to, what we really are trying to do is just provide a framework to continue to innovate in these kinds of ways with greater security that we, than, we, than we have had now. And frankly, with the security that one gets by working within a, collective, uh, bargain, a collectively bargained regime, which means that unfortunately, when there is foul weather, as inevitably there is between employees and employers at times, we do, should it be necessary, have the opportunity to seek independent, an independent grievance and arbitration mechanism uh, or take advantage of that, which at present, of course, we uh, we do not mm-hmm. we do not have access to. Qui bon, là, je vais switcher au français, mais dans le fond, non, c'est bon, c'est ce bon. que j'allais 
mentionné là, quand je parlais de l'école de travail social, c'est que, bon, tu sais, cette inégalité dans les rapports employés-employeurs-là, puis les effets de la pandémie, tu sais, sont vécus across the board, I assume, by like all profs of all faculties. Fait que, est-ce que il y a d'autres facultés dont les professeurs essaient de se syndiquer en ce moment? In McGill or, uh, or outside? In McGill. Uh, in, in McGill, McGill? Yeah. Uh, honestly, I don't know. I don't know. It is up to the faculty members of other faculties to decide if they want to follow this, uh, follow this path or if they want to continue as, uh, as they have been. Um, we are at present just, we are nose down. We're in the middle of a hearing, of, a con of, of contested hearings where Mill McGill is basically pulling out all stops uh, and throwing the proverbial kitchen sink um, at us to try to defeat our attempt to, uh, to be certified. So we aren't so much as besieged um, at, uh, you know, at the present time as in open, hostile, you know, battlefield conflict uh, litigation with McGill before the Tribunal Administratif du Travail. We've had two days of hearings already. Um, some of the, uh, at moments, the, uh, uh, the hearings and the discussions in the hearings um, have been quite heated, uh, but they've also been greatly beneficial in terms of the light they have shone on the nature of our, uh, our employment relationship with McGill to this point and how we, and ways we can uh, try to improve it into the future. Okay, so again, that transitions well into... Our next question, which is uh, the stage you're in now, if you want to like expand on that. So you mentioned that uh, you are seeking certification at the Tribunal Administratif du Travail. And I guess we're just going to specify at that point that um, McGill administration did not have to contest that, could have just like, no, let that when go. We, once we, so once we uh, filed for certification, um, all employers have the option of recognizing the bargaining unit that's what we are we would be called under the labor code at our faculty uh, a bargaining unit if we're successful um, or they can challenge it and propose another bargaining unit so mcgill has said that no they don't think the the professors in the faculty of law should be recognized as a bargaining unit that the appropriate bargaining bargaining unit is all the professors of uh, mcgill so there are about 1750 tenured or tenure track professors at McGill and McGill's position is that they believe that that is the appropriate bargain unit, not the professors um, from the faculty, uh, from the faculty of law. So we are in hearings right now. We've had two days of hearings. We had, uh, McGill has the burden of proof to show that our, the bargaining unit we're proposing is not viable by which is, by which, um, uh, by which I mean, they have to show that For some reason, we are incapable of, as a faculty, as members of a faculty, bargaining a collective agreement uh, with the university. We think we stand on very solid uh, legal ground in that now freedom of association is clearly um, in the wake of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms and the Quebec Charter clearly recognized to include freedom of association. Uh, freedom of association story is clearly recognized to include the right to um, associate collectively and bargain collectively. 
we also believe that we're in uh, a very good position in that we are clearly our own distinctive community of interest, which is the fundamental criterion for determining whether or not a bargaining unit really is an appropriate or viable bargaining unit. Is it a distinctive community of interest? We think at the Faculty of Law that we are, that we that our fundamental workplace is the Faculty of Law. We spend very little time outside of it mm-hmm. at the university, not no time, but little time. And of course, our boss uh, is the dean. That's who we that's who we uh, interact with on a on a a regular basis with respect to our teaching loads, with respect to negotiating our salary, he determines our merit pay, all of the things that typically go into, you know, what's at the heart of an employment relationship are determined between us and our dean with very little, uh, with us having very little to say to say um, to the university at large. And of course, the, the the dean has to operate with an envelope that the university provides him. But it is the dean to make, who makes the discretionary decisions that uh, that fundamentally uh, shape our uh, shape our workplace. So that is the question. That's the issue that's being discussed and being litigated now at the uh, uh, at the uh, at the labor board or the tribunal the tribunal administratif du travail. And uh, we've had two days so far. It seems, uh, so far as we can tell, that uh, uh, that things have gone well for us, and we're hopeful that on our third day, which will be February fourteenth, that we'll be able to continue to make our case to uh, to the judge at the labor board. And what are um, McGill's administration arguments based on that? Uh, this is not the good bargaining unit. Well, um, it seems their initial argument on the first day seemed to be that there are all kinds of regulations, like regulations on t- on getting tenure, regulations on taking leave, regulations on uh, a variety of matters that govern us across the university that are that are common across uh, across faculties. And so, it seems that they uh, it seems that they wish to say that. The commonality of those uh, means that um, one particular faculty cannot uh, uh, cannot exist by itself in a collective uh, in, a, in a collective agreement uh, kind of situation. Um, in fact, we already have something like that in McGill in two senses. So, course lecturers Chardecourt have uh, have a union, but then we have running, you know, parallel to them, faculty lecturers who are not who are not unionized and adjunct professors who uh, you know, who are not unionized who occupy similar roles. We also have service personnel in McGill who, although they're recognized by one union and often do the same work and could work in different parts of McGill, have different bargaining units. So it's it's very it, it's very common that in a large organization, in fact, it's almost the rule in a large organization that you will have more than one uh, bargaining unit if you have um, if you have a significant number of employees, especially if they do uh, if they, if they do different work. So, you know, what is really key about our situation is that at a university, generally speaking, or at least at the Faculty of Law, we're not interchangeable. You can't go to the engineering faculty and bring an engineer in to teach administrative law, which is what I teach, and nor could I go, you know, to the engineering faculty and teach them anything about mining or, or civil engineering. 
the things that we do are highly specialized, highly particular, and our individual faculties, as is borne out by McGill's own documents, um, reflect pay scales that have an eye to the outside market, which is different for different faculties. So we think we're distinctive in all, in all manner of ways. And um, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to speak, uh, you know, too much about the uh, too much about the hearing and the and, and the procedures that's still ongoing. But we're very optimistic at this stage, at least at the very least, cautiously optimistic that uh, things at the hearing are going well. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And so what? is in your opinion at the bottom of like McGill's administrative administration actually position like are they why are they fighting the union so why much? yeah exactly and like let's specify here that like for Rome and Freddie spent two uh, like almost full days contesting it um yes. at the hearing at the tribunal administrative du travail so why are they obsessive over that You know, that is a great question, but I would beg you to ask them that question because we would love to know the answer too. I mean, we have no intention on, you know, uh, doing anything but proceeding in the most collegial manner possible. Uh, One of the beautiful things about Quebec's labor regime is that once a bargaining unit certifies, it's guaranteed to get a collective agreement. So we're not going to certify and then not come to a collective agreement and then we're going to be striking and it's going to be pickets and you know war in the street, nothing like that at all. The way it works in Quebec is if we get certified, we go into collective, we go into collective uh, bargaining with McGill. We have, we have, we have very generally, we have, we're very lucky to have uh, received the support of the Canadian Association of University Teachers of Quebec's version of that, the FQPPU. Um, They have experts with lots of experience at collective bargaining that they've already already advised us will be uh, be willing to help us when we get to that stage. They're already helping us to pay for our legal legal expenses um, at the the tribunal uh, right now. So we hope that collegially we'll be able to reach a productive collective agreement with McGill. But should we have difficulty doing so, there is a procedure in place. And the procedure is a conciliator is appointed. If conciliation fails, then it goes to arbitration and an arbitrator sets the terms of the of the of the first collective agreement. So what we essentially have then is an independent, impartial third party decides what are the best, fairest, most appropriate terms for us to work under, as opposed to the situation we have now, which is that in frank, in, in truth, there is no organization um, at McGill legally authorized to represent us in bargaining with McGill. We do have a unit, we do have a university teachers association, the McGill Association of University Teachers. Um, but management sit is man, management um, are members of that association. So Provost Manfredi is a member of MAUT. Uh, our Dean, Dean Lecky, is a member of MAUT. They work, it works through a system of what is described as collegial governance, where there are a number of committees that meet regularly. That have, rep- that have representatives from MAUT that come from the ranks of the professoriate. And often 
typically our interests are aligned and things work out well, but then sometimes they are not. So MAUT took a strong position with respect to COVID and uh, the idea of proof of vaccination uh, in August and September wrote a strong letter asking for the administration to bring in a proof of vaccination requirement. And they were, you know, quite frankly, ignored. And they received exactly the same uh, treatment that the majority of law profs who wrote, who signed on to the, uh, a similar letter and, that was sent to central administration um, received exactly the same sort of response. Just, we're not going to do this. Thank you for your concern. Um, uh, you know, and that, and that's it. And that is sort of the, that way, if you aren't, if you aren't organized, that's the end of it. You get, you, you go, you ask for a little more and you're told you can have a little more, or you cannot have a little more. You can participate a little, a little more or not participate a little more. And there's really no recourse past that in terms of policy, especially in terms of policy, policy setting. Once you have a collective bargaining framework in place, however, then you actually have something you can sit down and talk about and revisit and use as a living document, a living constitution of the workplace conditions you work under, typically on a three-year basis. I'm curious, who is the administration responsive to then? If like, yeah, you've just talked about like the MAUT not being able to influence its policies to like prof sort of organizing. And... Well, let's, there was, so there was a lot of speculation as to who the administration, there has been a lot of speculation about who the administration has been responding to, to resist as strenuously as they did a vaccine mandate, for example. And some have speculated that it was the administration adopting a, a close, possibly too close relationship to Quebec City that did not want apparently uh, universities to adopt a vaccine mandate and denominated universities as essential services akin to, for example, grocery stores where you would not have to show, you know, the kind of vaccine code that you have to show to go into, uh, go into a restaurant. To be honest, I'm not, I don't want to speculate on what mm -hmm. uh, our university administrators Uh, motives are. I think these are people who have, uh, especially now, extremely difficult jobs, um, uh, made so much more difficult uh, by COVID. So um, I do have great sympathy for them at the same time. I hope they will, they can show a like sympathy and recognize that we aren't looking for anything more than an ability to communicate and work with them on a slightly more equal footing. Mm -hmm. And um, just before we move out of the earring subject, sure. is there things you'd like to share about like what you've discovered at the hearings? Or I know you've, you've mentioned that you don't want to yeah. expand on that too much. So we can also uh, move on. Um, there, have been, there, have been, uh, there have been some documents that have surfaced at uh, the hearing that show a governance structure that many of us who've been there have been surprised to discover because we didn't know it existed before. And that governance structure is essentially a regularized set of meetings between the dean of our faculty and we've sub subsequently learned the deans of all faculties and the provost that lead to yearly faculty agreements. These have not been made public to McGill professors, law professors, or other professors, 
we uh, were able to we were able to overcome strenuous objections from McGill to get faculty agreements. Uh, these faculty agreements that that are literally signed by the dean and by the provost um, on a yearly basis uh, from McGill uh, through the hearing um, at our last session uh, on Monday. And on Monday, we were again able to uh, uh, get an uh, secure an undertaking from McGill over McGill's objections, but the judge overruled to get the last year's faculty agreements from every faculty um, at McGill. So this will be the those those will be forthcoming uh, prior to February fourteenth, and once they're entered into evidence, uh, we will move to make those available. This will be the first. These faculty agreements have overviews of faculty priorities, budget lines, uh, hiring lines, the, anticip the, anticipate, the anticipated size that faculties are moving toward, enrollments, um, goals, all of, all of the sort of nitty gritty granular stuff that you would hope would be, would be the meat and potatoes of discussions at faculty councils mm -hmm. and within, within faculties uh, more generally. And that we hope, to make the meat and potatoes of our discussion with the administration once we're certified and we have a collective bargaining regime in place. Mm. It's really and, nice, within, it? and within our ordinary, of course, structures, primarily uh, faculty council. Yeah, not totally. Um, yeah, I'm happy to hear that we're all gonna benefit from uh, the transparency regarding the governance that you're able to sort of extract from the earring. So looking forward to see those documents for sure. And now we're up for a break with Dolly Parton, but don't go anywhere, because when we're back, the conversation with Evan Fox Decent continues, digging into what the university community stands to gain by the profs' unionization. This is Nancy from Not You, and you're listening to CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal, Quebec. Stumble to the kitchen, pour myself a cup of ambition and yawn and stretch and try to come to life. Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping. Out on the streets, the traffic starts jumping with folks like me on the job from nine to five. Working nine to five. What a
Okay, and also before I was thinking, I was under like uh, an impression that tenured prof were kind of on the top of the university's power pyramid, and which obviously has been deconstructed um, when I became closer with some academics and some tenure prof that uh, said to have experienced um, total exclusion from administrative decision-making processes, as you were mentioning, or like a perpetual pressure to publish. And um, yeah, basically a lot of like very draining requirements that flow from uh, the marketization of higher education institutions, among others. So I just, yeah, I would like to hear you on that as uh, I think this is to me like a very fertile ground for solidarity between students and professors. Thank you. Well, so, you know, we have, we have at the faculty felt um, creeping managerialism, creeping corporatization of, um, uh, of processes that historically were dealt with on an entirely local basis um, at the faculty. So it's, I mean, so to be sure, part of the motivation of us organizing now um, is to strengthen our local autonomy, our local self-government, so that we can control, you know, the times at which, for example, our colleagues teach, where we teach, where we can buy computers, uh, you know, when we need to uh, buy computers or electronic or teaching equipment or media equipment, um, how we... Uh, seek reimbursement for, ex, uh, for expenses uh, or, uh, uh, or, or even put together course packs. All of these things, not too long ago, were dealt with at a very, you know, at a very local level, at our faculty, at our faculty level. And we've been, in, we've been um, really over the last 10 years in a constant struggle to keep things at our faculty level where it seems that there's been an ongoing push uh, to centralize everything. And uh, uh, so of course, that's something that, you know, we think is, uh, we think for reasons of subsidiarity, we think we uh, are closest, uh, you know, to our students and our community and uh, as our community is closest to us. And so that together we have a best sense of how to deal with the issues that most affect our community, whether it's issues of equity, uh, inclusion, diversity, teaching load for, uh, for profs, teaching load distributed between undergraduate teaching and graduate supervision, all number of, all number of issues. Um, we, want to, we want to ensure they either remain at a local, at our faculty level, uh, or those that have that are tending to um, move to the a centralized level to try to put a break on that uh, and even uh, and even reverse it if uh, if possible through collective uh, through collective bargaining. So uh, so we hear that we hear what you're we certainly hear what you're saying. And let me just say that uh, we have been tremendously enthused and buoyed by the solidarity that we have received. From students, we we've received uh, financial and moral solidarity from uh, CAUT, uh, from the course lecturers union, from grad the graduate students uh, from uni union, from our uh, clerical um, staffs uh, union. So the unions across McGill have been nothing but generous and forthcoming and supportive of us as of uh, as have our students and frankly this is uh, we're at 
the most fragile and precarious time of our existence. And so it's uh, it's greatly appreciated. I'm glad to hear that. And I've heard a rumor that like, maybe not a rumor, but that like uh, the law faculty, the music faculty were the most decentralized one. So had the most sort of power within the university. Is that true? Because I've also... I don't, know, <laughs> I don't know. So honest to goodness, I... You know, I've so I have gone to a couple of productions um, put on by members of our music faculty, but I honestly I wouldn't even pretend to I wouldn't be, pretend to begin to uh, suggest uh, you know what uh, uh, what sort of influence or power or autonomy the faculty of music has. And as for the faculty of law, well, the proof will be in the pudding within uh, mm-hmm. probably four or five weeks. We'll we'll know if we're able to secure certification that will certainly be uh, that will certainly put us in a uh, uh, a much better position than we are now to you know, participate constructively in the delivery of uh, uh, the teaching and research and service missions that we're all committed to okay that's great so I was going to ask you uh, what you were expecting to flow for the from the unionization effort moving forward, but you already said you were feeling yeah. uh, confident. And preparing for the conversation, I read an article by Diane Reddy. Diane Reddy, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that well. That sounds right. Um, which was titled like Labor, Labor Marketing and the Common Good. And it was mentioning how um, in the US, late like the teachers labor unions were um, instrumental to closing schools uh, when then President Trump wouldn't do so or state governors. I don't know exactly what's the separation of power there, which I think all the children, families and communities benefited from. So if certification was granted, so what do you think that all faculty members, that is like us to us students, who are going to feel its positive impacts? I think so, and I'll, I can I can tell you why. Um, because right now, without certification, uh, people out there, including in the faculty of law, tenured professors who I know as a student you must look to and think are sort of on an exalt, occupy a kind of exalted status. Tenured colleagues of mine, some of them with chairs, are terrified to speak out against university authorities. Terrified. Not that they necessarily believe that they will be punished directly, like they will be you know, given less pay or give it, even given more work, but because our cachet comes from, the bes- largely comes from the bestowal of benefits on us. So in my case, for example, I'm very fortunate to have, a, I'm very fortunate to have a chair. In the case of other, in other, uh, in the case of other, uh, other colleagues, they will, uh, they will be nominated uh, for awards, such as the Principal's Award for Teaching and all sorts of awards that are, um, uh, that are granted by bodies external to McGill. Uh, to get one of those awards, you need, the, you, need the support of, you need the support of your faculty. And to do well, to do well there, to do well in promotion when you're going up for tenure, going up for associate professor, going up for full professor, at all these stages along the way, you need faculty support. And um, I can tell you that we have colleagues in the faculty of law now with tenure 
who are supportive of what we're doing and who wouldn't would not sign confidential union cards simply because they're afraid of that confidence not holding up it's somehow getting out and there being repercussions um, on them possibly just a, a withdrawal of benefits or um, a resistance to uh, provide benefits now you might say, oh, they're, you know, that, that's overblown or they don't need to have these fears, but those fears are real. Whether people have to have those fears or not, or they're rational, they're real. They do have them. I can promise you have them. They have them because I've spoken to virtually every member of our faculty and I know they're real. And to me, one of the great things that we're going to get through certification is the sense, is the confidence, hopefully, on the part of those people that they don't have to have an attitude, quite frankly, of a certain amount of bowing and scraping, right? And, def and, de and deference to authority. We are, a number of us are, you know, just by nature, outspoken and you know, sort of treat authority on the virtue of the merits that authority espouses rather than the position that it, uh, that it occupies. But we are, in a, we are in a hierarchy. And I think that when we have... Uh, the benefit of grievance procedures from which one can be dismissed and indeed um, disciplined only for uh, only for cause and the people ultimately deciding those questions will be independent arbitrators arbitrators who are independent from McGill I think will be in a much better place as a community and much better to in a much better place to support our students and to support the wider community that we serve. Mm -hmm. No, that's definitely what I'm getting from our conversation that like it's going to facilitate our organizing if you get your certification because uh, Megil is just this, like a masterpiece and it's so hard to like channel grievances, student grievances yeah. sometimes because it's always, uh, I don't know, like I've been to a couple of committee meetings, various committees meetings uh, last year and no committee was like able to take any resolution or action it was always like oh we're gonna write a recommendation and it's gonna go up and go up so um so that's great um and finally so how can students best support you oh well, thank you very much very very simply three concrete things the first is to write individual letters to dean lecky and to Provost Manfredi asking them to stop spending student fees fighting our attempt at certification, to redirect those, those fees to virtually anything else, which would be more productive than where they're diverting them now. So that, that would be, those are two things. That would be one thing, individual letters to uh, Dean uh, Lecky and Provost Manfredi. I would also encourage if students were of a mind to do a petition with the same request to please stop spending our precious fees and public resources on this kind of union busting litigation. That we can all do better if we work collectively, listen to the supermajority of the faculty that is much prized at McGill for good reason. Um, and on the other side of it, we, pro you know, we promise and we commit to negotiate collectively in good faith 
from start to finish. And finally, the absolute last thing that students can do that I think is perhaps of most importance is come to the hearing on February 14th. It is almost certain to be virtual There's uh, and held uh, via Zoom. We were delighted to see scores of students and colleagues in attendance last time. The university does not particularly wish for this to be a pub uh, publicly attended um, event, but I think it's enormously helpful for students and in particular law students to see just where the rubber hits the road in labor law. And this is it. This is like the most important moment of a labor movement's history, whether it can have a history or it's the question of whether it can have a, an existence or not. We want to have an existence so that we can work better for all people associated with the faculty of law and beyond um, at McGill. And we're very hopeful that in the next few weeks, we'll, the, the Labor Board will certify us and we'll be able to move forward in that direction. That covers everything. Is there something you'd like to add? Audrey, that was just, that was amazing. Thank you very much to you and Legalese uh, for doing this. I think it's just, uh, it's just wonderful. Um, this is a great way for us, you know, to get the word out about what we're doing. We are going to, you know, try to keep students and others um, updated. There, it's limited what we, we're limited in what we can say as we are in the midst of uh, a legal process, uh, an ongoing legal process, but you can, of course, inform yourselves directly by simply um, attending that process. And I can promise you that in the not too distant future, we will be making available the publicly available uh, document documents that are publicly available now for the first time that have to do with just how our university is actually governed at the granular level. That was Legalise's Audrey speaking with McGill Law Prof Evan Fox Decent. Vous écoutez une émission de Legalise sur CKUT. 90.3 FM. That's all from us today. Thank you for listening and thanks to everyone who contributed to the show. You can listen to Legalese every second Friday of the month from 11 a.m. till 12 noon on CKUT 90.3 FM. If you have ideas of topics you'd like us to cover, legal or not, you can write to us at legalese at ckut.ca. Find us on SoundCloud at CKUT Legalese. Extended versions of the interviews you hear on some of our shows are available there. And don't forget to tune in to the Profs Union hearing on the 14th of February. This land is your land, and this land is my land, from the California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me As I went a-walkin' that ribbon of highway I saw above me that endless skyway Saw below me that golden valley This land was made for you and me and rambled and I followed my footsteps to the sparkling sands of her diamond desert 
All around me a voice was sounding This land was made for you and me When the sun comes shining Then I was strolling And the wheat fields waving And the dust clouds rolling The voice was chanting As the fog was lifting This land was made for you and me This land is your land, and this land is my land. From California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. As I went walking, I saw a sign there, and on the sign it said, No trespassing, but on the other side, you didn't say nothing and that sign was made for you and me This land is your land and this land is my land From the California to the New York Island From the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters This land was made for you and me In the shadows of the steeple I saw my people in the relief office I saw my people as they stood hungry I stood there asking Is this land really made for you and me? Nobody living can ever stop me as I go walking my freedom highway Nobody living can make me turn back This land was made for you and me This land is your land and this land is my land From California to the New York Island From Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters this land was made for you and me This land is your land And this land is my land From California To the New York Island From Redwood Park